good afternoon. I'm Jim Dorn, Vice President for Academic Affairs at the Cato Institute uh, and editor of the Cato Journal. It's a pleasure to welcome you here for this book forum uh, to basically launch Dick Timberlake's uh, new book on constitutional money, a review of the Supreme Court's monetary decisions, uh, published by Cambridge University Press and co-published by the Cato Institute. It's a very handsome book, and uh, I'm sure Dick will be glad to sign copies uh, after, after the forum. And I'd like to congratulate Dick on this accomplishment. Uh, Dick's going to turn 91 in June, and he's been working on this book uh, since he was 50. Not really. <laughs> uh, Before that. <laughs> uh, and we're also pleased to have uh, Steve Hankey from Johns Hopkins and George Selgin, who's a longtime uh, collaborator with uh, Dick in terms of uh, monetary history. And George teaches at the University of Georgia, and that's where Dick taught for many, many years. Uh, with the 100th anniversary of the Federal Reserve Act uh, this December, it seems like an appropriate time to review Supreme Court cases and decisions that help shape U.S. monetary institutions. Uh, the book begins with McCulloch v. Maryland, which is 1819, and ends with the Gold Clause cases, uh, which were 1934 and 35. Other books have examined the court's monetary decisions, uh, but Timberlake is the first to fully scrutinize them, both from a constitutional perspective and through the lens of monetary theory and history. Uh, he's been writing on monetary history and policy for more than 50 years, which seems pretty good. Um, but I was at Anna Schwartz's uh, memorial service at the NBER on Sunday, and she worked for the NBER for 71 years. Uh, so Dick's got a ways to go yet. Uh, he was a bomber pilot uh, during World War II. Uh, he was awarded three Purple Hearts. Uh, when he returned from the war, he earned a PhD in economics from the University of Chicago and wrote his dissertation under the direction of Milton Friedman. Uh, he taught money and banking for many years uh, at the University of Georgia and now is an emeritus professor of economics there, as well as a Cato adjunct scholar. Uh, Dick has long been interested in the classical gold standard, free banking, and the Federal Reserve. Uh, in his current book, he devo devotes the final chapter to the case for a convertible currency as opposed to the current pure fiat money system. He also discusses other rule-based regimes that would be compatible with the framers' constitution. His previous books include Money Banking and Central Banking and uh, the more recent Monetary Policy in the United States and Intellectual and Institutional History, which the University of Chicago published in 1993. Uh, it's an honor to have uh, Dick Timberlake here today, so please help me welcome him. Thank you very much, Jim. I'm very pleased to be here. I especially want to thank you and George Selgin for the excellent editing you helped me with, with on this book. Um, uh, you said I had been on it for 50 years. The seed was planted in 1958, which is more than, well, 55 years. Uh, when I was reading a book called Banks and Politics in America by uh, Bray Hammond, uh, who was a Federal Reserve employee, uh, I think he was at the library of the Fed in Fed board here in uh, Washington. 
And uh, uh, he wrote a very engrossing book, but he insisted that the federal government had uh, complete control over the monetary system. He referred to that three or four times. And I thought to myself, how did he get that? And uh, so after I finished my degree work and thankfully and gratefully had a PhD degree. By the way, Milton Friedman was one of the two people on my committee, but Earl, Professor Earl Hamilton was uh, more uh, 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 present with me on that than, than was uh, Milton. Um, so I look back into the, into the history of, of, um, of the times. I read a lot of stuff in the annals of Congress and the congressional debates, which had four or five, three or four different names. And I couldn't find any reference to anything that said that, that the federal government or Congress had absolute control over the over the monetary system. Well, what I didn't look at then was the Supreme Court decisions. And that's where, that's where it, uh, that's where the, uh, the uh, substance is that uh, grants the uh, uh, Congress complete control. Congress under the Constitution had um, an express power to uh, create a, uh, to provide for a gold and silver currency. And inevitably, um, things would come up that would require Supreme Court interpretations. The first such decision that the court made that re with regard to money was McCulloch versus Maryland in 1819. That case sanctioned Congress's incorporation of a federal bank with branches, um, which of course it had to have because it was, a, it was a, an agency of the US Treasury and the fiscal requirements of the Treasury required branches in all the states where the Treasury did business, whether where it collected taxes and made disbursements. Um, so the, the, the new bank of the United States was the second new bank of the United States, uh, had uh, powers to, um, uh, um, to do business in these different states, whereas state banks didn't have any uh, interstate uh, license. All, the, all of the banks in the states could only operate within the framework of the laws in that state. And they were all prohibited from having branches, which were very uh, much, uh, would very much uh, an aid and assistance to the solvency of banks. Um, well, the, the detail in the case of McCulloch versus Maryland was whether the state of Maryland could impose a substantial note issue tax 
on the bank's Baltimore branch issues of paper currency. All of the banks, commercial banks at that time, uh, issued paper currency saying that the bearer could get gold or silver uh, by redeeming this note at such and such a bank. And, uh, uh, but the state of Maryland didn't like uh, the Bank of the United States being there, and it wanted to tax that branch so that it would not be there. And uh, the, the Supreme Court said, no, you can't do that because Congress has the right to establish a bank if it's necessary and proper for the functioning of the U.S. Treasury. And we think that it is necessary and proper. And uh, John Marshall, the uh, Supreme Court Chief Justice, then made a ringing declaration of how things could be done that were necessary and proper if they weren't necessary and proper. But it was labeled a ringing declaration. Uh, he was primarily a federalist who believed in centralized government as opposed to states' rights governments. Well, so the, the bank um, uh, came into existence with branches in the states. All of them could issue currency, which were redeemable in specie, gold or silver. Um, <clears throat> but, the but the bank's notes were also redeemable for all debts to and from the federal government. Federal government had a 20% ownership interest in the bank. Consequently, the notes of the, of the Bank of the United States and its branches were, uh, were universally used within those states, something that, that no state bank could possibly do. Um, you could use the notes of a state bank in another state, but you, no state bank could uh, uh, have a, a branch bank in that state. You, if the note was accepted, the person accepting it had to presume he could get a redemption for that note out of state, which meant sending the note back through uh, local banks to the bank that had issued it. It was a cumbersome operation. But uh, consequently, since the uh, Bank of the United States had branches and, and a currency uh, uh, privilege, uh, it was thriving. Uh, it couldn't fail. And uh, so through the 1918, 18, 20s, it, uh, it operated very successfully and gradually assumed the character of, guess what, a central bank, but it didn't completely uh, adopt that position. And the head of the bank, Nicholas Biddle, thought of himself as an, an entrepreneur of a private organization. Nevertheless, he had um, <clears throat> 
He had central banking powers that had not been legally given to the institution. Well, um, Andrew Jackson, uh, when he became president, um, had a very dim view of the Bank of the United States. And he, uh, he took up a campaign against it, uh, amounting to almost a crusade. Uh, and since the bank had to be rechartered in 1832 after 20, uh, so that it would fit into the 20 year schedule, it was passed, uh, the act was passed in 1860, so it was going to last till 1836, 20 years. But um, the bill for it had to come into Congress by a good bit before 1836. And uh, it, so it came into the attention of Congress about 1831, and then there were a lot of debates about it in 1832. Uh, and uh, generally speaking, the Whigs were in favor of it, and the Democrats were against it. Uh, um, so when the, when the bill came up to Jackson, was passed in uh, Congress and came to Jackson for his signature, he vetoed it. Uh, that's become a very famous veto, but nobody seems to have read the details. Well, I read the details and it's an excellent case against central banking. In fact, it, uh, every, everything that Jackson said was uh, uh, a, uh, a, a condemnation of, of, the, uh, of the, what the bank had been doing and uh, correctly, in my opinion, uh, brought the Bank of the United States to an end as a government institution. It continued as a bank in Pennsylvania, a commercial bank, and failed in 1839. So it wasn't all that great a commercial institution either. Um, now I present the, the Jackson case in my book because it amounted to a Supreme Court decision. Uh, Jackson said uh, right out front that, that he and all the other members of the government took an oath of office to support the Constitution. And whether the Supreme Court had supported, had decided the case one way didn't mean that he couldn't veto the bill because he saw the constitutional principles a different way. And uh, that was the basis of his, uh, his veto, which had many other excellent uh, points. Um, uh, so the, uh, the, final, the final no-do about the second bank was that the government and the U.S. Treasury continued to operate 
up through, through uh, the, uh, past the middle of the 19th century up to 1860, which of course is going to be a big, there's gonna be a big thing happen in there. Uh, and the second bank wasn't there, but the US Treasury uh, uh, managed very well without it. So it was not a necessary and therefore not a very proper institution for um, uh, the government to have uh, uh, inst uh, to have initiated. Well, the Civil War was the turning point in the monetary system. Up until 1860, no one in his right mind would think that anything but gold and silver could be a base for the monetary system. Uh, it was written in stone, and the stone was the Constitution. But uh, wars always provoke uh, things that are not constitutional, and the, the Civil War was an, one of them. Uh, the, the federal government, uh, early in the war, in the 18 late 1861, early 1862, um, promoted through the House Ways and Means Committee a uh, bill to create fully legal tender paper money. That is, paper money that would be legal tender for all debts, public and private. Now, prior to that, the Treasury, the U.S. Treasury, had issued notes called just Treasury notes that were different, had different characteristics that I won't go into, but they were legal tender for debts due and to and from the government. All right, that's one thing. But when the government says that the notes are due to and from one private individual to another, that's putting a completely different and addition, great additional um, feature to the notes. Well, the, uh, I, I won't go into all the things that happened. Uh, I discussed them in the book, uh, how the, the, bill, the legal tender bills went through Congress. And, and uh, first uh, Congress said, um, Congressman said, well, these aren't, these aren't constitutional. And then the, the man who was promoting them, Spalding was his name, said, oh, but they're necessary and proper, and therefore of imminent necessity. Uh, and on that basis, they, they w went through and finally were, the bill passed, and the first issue occurred in February of 1862. Then there were two more uh, bills adding to that that left the total at 450 million. In today's world, that's 450 trillion. Uh, you know, the trillions are now uh, the the talking point 
the denomination that we have to deal with. Uh, well, the um, uh, so ultimately the uh, the question became that developed between the end of the Civil War and uh, 1869 was whether the greenbacks, which were now in circulation, uh, there weren't 450 million, but there were 300 and I think 76 million, um, whether they were legal tender for debts that had been contracted before the Legal Tender Acts were passed. And that was a serious question because the people who made contracts before the Legal Tender Acts were passed were thinking in terms of currency and money redeemable in gold at the fixed price. So the, that was the question that came up for the Supreme Court to answer. Nobody was talking yet about debts that had occurred after the acts were passed. Well, the court, uh, we had a very interesting uh, <laughs> uh, personality thing uh, develop with the court. Andrew Jackson, Secretary of the Treasury, was a man named Salmon P. for Philander, no, no, Portland, Chase. And uh, uh, I was thinking of my old college uh, um, founder, whose name was Philander Chase. He was a nephew of this Salmon P. Chase. Uh, or maybe it was the other way around. But um, uh, Chase had very, uh, he had great ambitions about being president. and. Um, and in order to keep him sort of out of the way, uh, he was Secretary of the Treasury to compromise with the, uh, the Democrats. Uh, and, uh, and he supported briefly and perfunctorily the issue of the greenbacks while he was Secretary of the Treasury. That was in the early 1860s. But then uh, the... the occasion happened that he was um, that he resigned his secretaryship and Jackson then appointed him Chief Justice of the Supreme Court uh, uh, about 1865 or so uh, when the previous ju Chief Justice Roger B. Taney uh, died. So here was here was um, Chase, now Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, and lo and behold, what was coming up for judgment was the acts that he uh, supported when he was Secretary of the Treasury. Guess which way he went? He voted against the constitutionality of the greenbacks, and I hand him credit for that. He, he, he learned something in those five years, and he put it to practice, 
and he was a part of the 5-4 majority, 5-3 majority, that said that the greenbacks for debts uh, uh, contracted before the Legal Tender Acts were unconstitutional. Well, that decision was handed down in 1870, early 1870, and about the time it was decided, one of the justices uh, named Greer retired. He was pretty old. I don't know whether he was 91. Uh, but he retired, and uh, so the, the final decision was labeled four to three. And once again, though, it's majoritarian voting, which we know is uh, the birds. But uh, it has to be used sometimes. And uh, just about this time, uh, since there was already one vacancy on the court, that had been left over from the time that Andrew, Andrew Johnson was president. And since Greer had retired, there were now two vacancies on the Supreme Court. Well, Jack, I mean, uh, Grant, who was now president, uh, conferred with his uh, cabinet and appointed uh, two Republican uh, justices from, uh, uh, who were supportive of the greenbacks. And he'd already appointed three others who were supportive. So the court was now in a position to reverse the first legal tender case, which was Hepburn versus Griswold. About, uh, so the, the attorney general of Grant's cabinet uh, asked the Supreme Court to retry or to try two new cases on the, the legitimacy of the greenbacks for cases before, uh, for contracts made before the, the acts were passed. And the court went into session and, and, and came out with a new judgment that all, the, all of the contracts that were made before or any time after the, the uh, greenbacks were legislated were constitutional. In other words, paper money was constitutional, fully legal tender paper money. Uh, so what had been a 5-3 majority was now a 4-5 minority because of these two cases. Oft times in the past, people have said that Jack, uh, that Grant um, <clears throat> packed the court. Well, he didn't pack the court. He had every right to, uh, to appoint two new justices. But those justices had the responsibility to adjudicate those issues um, under constitutional constraints, and they didn't do it. They kowtowed to the political preferences of the Grant administration. Uh, and all, it's astonishing in some ways how the, Re the Republican 
people who were the Republican administrations, which were in force from 1860 to 1912, with the exception of, of Cleveland, who was more conservative than the Republicans, uh, appointed, ended up with all of these uh, Supreme Court justices that, uh, that allowed for the, uh, for the uh, fully legal tender paper money. Not one Democrat ever voted in favor of, of constitutionalizing uh, the greenbacks. Uh, <clears throat> furthermore, well, let's see. Um, oh, um, now we, we move beyond the Civil War period into the, uh, and we're past now 1871 and 72, where um, the Supreme Court has adjudicated the constitutionalization of, of the Greenbacks. In 1884, again, there was a case, uh, somebody raised the question of whether uh, the Greenbacks were constitutional in time of war and time of peace. And again, the, uh, the decision reflecting more Republicans on the court was eight to one. By this time, of course, there were nine Supreme Court justices. The only one left over was this man named Stephen Field, who was a, um, who had been Supreme Court Justice uh, in California. And, and if you want to read uh, some interesting history, read about Stephen Field and the gunfights he had in California. <laughs> um, okay. Well, uh, I'm probably have, uh, spent too much time on, on the uh, legal tender cases. After the, the acts, uh, after the Supreme Court decisions, uh, the, uh, uh, the polity of the United States was to restore gold payments. So uh, that was a successful policy. Uh, by uh, 1879, the country was back on a gold standard. But here was, here was the Supreme Court decision saying, well, uh, uh, Congress has all complete control over the monetary system, but here's a gold standard constraining the uh, system, and the, and the monetary system is operating on the gold standard. Um, so which was which? Was this, did Congress have complete control over the monetary system? If they did, uh, uh, they didn't have to get back on a gold standard. They could have abrogated that any time. Instead, they waited until 18, 1934 to, uh, to uh, fully abrogate it. Well, <clears throat> I'm running out of time, but um, the, uh, the, the most important institution that we know today uh, began operations in 1913, 
and that's the Federal Reserve System. But, and I want to make this point, and that is that nothing in the Federal Reserve Act ever referred to the Supreme Court decisions giving Congress complete control over the quantity of money and monetary policy. The Fed was organized or passed as an act to uh, supplement and, and some, be a sometime uh, auxiliary to the commercial banks. It was not uh, by any means uh, an institution that had complete control over the quantity of money or monetary policy. Uh, but World War I ended all gold standard operations. From then on, uh, uh, all the belligerent governments uh, took control of their monetary systems and, and sterilized gold in their own treasuries. Uh, um, so uh, I haven't uh, gotten to the point where uh, the gold clauses uh, occurred. That was in the mid-30s and when uh, President Roosevelt uh, and Congress together uh, called in all the gold, paid for it, then raised the price uh, 59%, which the government now, being the owner, uh, enjoyed the uh, value of, and then uh, buried it all and uh, melted it down first so it couldn't be used as money, and made it into ingots, which were stored in the uh, in Fort Knox and various other couple of other places, and there it is, eight thousand one hundred and twenty-five tons of gold that nobody can use, nobody can see, nobody can count, and you can hardly even talk about it, let alone <laughs> get any value out of it. Uh, well, what I haven't discussed uh, here, uh, I'll let you read for yourself in my book. <laughs> uh, thank you. Thanks very much, Dick. Uh, by the way, when uh, I showed Dick the cover of the book, he, he didn't like the coins on the book. He said they didn't really look like true gold coins. They aren't. <laughs> <laughs> but I sure most people wouldn't notice. <laughs> uh, I think uh, Dick's a good storyteller, and I imagine when his kids were growing up, uh, maybe he told them about the uh, history of banking and so forth. Uh, it's nighttime stories. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Steve Hankey, an old friend. Uh, he's a professor of applied economics and co-director of the Institute for Applied Economics, Global Health, and the Study of Business Enterprise at the Johns Hopkins University. Uh, he's also a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. Uh, Steve's uh, CV is about a mile long, so I'm just going to mention a few things. Uh, he's senior advisor at the Renmin University of China's International Monetary Research Institute in Beijing. Uh, he's a contributing editor at uh, Globe Asia magazine, 
He's a columnist for Forbes. He's author of numerous articles uh, in scholarly journals and uh, also several books, including the most recent Zimbabwe, Hyperinflation uh, to Growth. Uh, he served as a senior economist uh, during President Reagan's Council of Economic Advisors, 1981-82. And he played an important role in establishing new currency regimes in Argentina, Estonia, Bulgaria, Bosnia, uh, Herzegovina, Ecuador, Lithuania, and Montenegro. Uh, he's kind of the father of the currency board in, in many of these uh, systems. So it's a pleasure to have Steve here today. Thank you, Jim. Ladies and gentlemen, um, it really does give me a great deal of pleasure and in fact is an honor to be able to make a few remarks about Professor Timberlake's book. Uh, at 90 years of age, Dick is still at the top of his game. Mm -hmm. And it raises a question, why? And I think the, the secret lies in something Winston Churchill said when he returned from the Boer War. Winston said, there is nothing more exhilarating than to be shot at without result. <laughs> and I, I, I think in the case of uh, Dick, uh, he knows all about that feeling of exhilaration, literally. Uh, as recounted in his autobiography, They Never Saw Me Then, uh, Dick recounts that uh, he was a member of the 388th Bomb Group flying B-17s out of the England. Indeed, he was, had 17 missions and was wounded three times, as Jim Dorn uh, indicated in his introduction, uh, but they never took Dick out, fortunately. Mm -hmm. Since then, Dick has produced a steady stream of scholarly books in which he's, he has gotten down into the plumbing of money and banking. And he has been the target of many academic hacks without result. There must have been, as Winston Churchill said, nothing more exhilarating, Dick. <laughs> now, for the book itself, Constitutional Money, first allow me to say that I second Professor Leland Yeager's endorsement of the book. Uh, as my friend and great economist Yeager, who is a couple years Dix Jr. noted, Timberlake writes smoothly with flashes of brilliant phrasing and an attractive mix of short and moderately long sentences. Well, for me, I would describe Dick's writing style as crunchy, you know, like Rice Krispies. The sentences snap, crackle, and pop. As for Dick's analytical style, it's granular and thorough, features that are scarce as hen's teeth in these days. So what has been my big takeaway from Dick's very granular book? It is that the law, more specifically the rule of law, is very elastic, particularly during times of so-called national emergencies or crises. Now, uh, Dick even alluded to this when he talked about war in uh, his re remarks. 
Uh, let me briefly disconsider the gold clause cases, uh, which are covered in chapter 22. In short, the Great Depression, a so-called national emergency, gave Congress license, and via a joint resolution, it abrogated the gold clause in June of 1933. Before that, a gold clause was included in most private and public bond covenants to ensure that bondholders could receive interest and principal payments in dollars that contained as much gold as the dollar that had contained when the bonds were issued. Well, after 1933, the US government manipulated the price of gold upward until under the Gold Reserve Act of January 1934, President Roosevelt redefined the dollar in gold terms. Overnight, the dollar became 41% lighter. This left the gold clause bondholders out to dry. In short, they got stuck with new light dollars, not the original heavy ones that had been specified in the original bond covenants. Bondholders, of course, sued over this theft, but the Supreme Court in 1935 held that the abrogation of the gold clauses for private bonds was constitutional. The court's decision rested on a fallacious argument that contracts which contained the gold clauses interfered with Congress's authority to coin money and regulate its value, Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution. In anticipation of further gold clause cases, Congress simply passed a law amending the jurisdiction of the federal courts so that they were barred from hearing any further gold clause cases. Every time I reflect on this congressional maneuver, the phrase back in the USSR rings in my ears. <laughs> Never mind. The point is clear. The rule of law, particularly during so-called national emergencies or crises, is very, very elastic, even in the good old USA. Another example of this legal elasticity in the monetary sphere was recently discovered and brought to my attention by my good friend David Marsh, who's an expert on the German Bundesbank. The German episode centers on the so-called Eminger letter. Ottmar Eminger was president of the Bundesbank from 1977 to 1979. Under the European Monetary Systems Exchange Rate Mechanism, the ERM, which was established in December of 1978, the Bundesbank was required by law to intervene with unlimited amounts of DMARCs to support weak currencies in other member countries when those currencies reach the floor of the European Monetary System's exchange rate mechanism. Well, the mighty Bundesbank couldn't countenance the thought of such an external interference with its conduct of monetary policy. So on November 16, 1978, Prior to the final signing of the EMS agreement, Herr Eminger sent a missive to the West German Chancellor, Helmut Schmidt. 
The missive stated that the Bundesbank wanted to be freed from its obligation to intervene during monetary crises to support weak currencies in the European monetary system. The Chancellor, of course, wanted and embraced the European monetary system, which, of course, was ultimately agreed to by a resolution of the European Council at a meeting in Bremen on December 5th, 1978. But what to do about the Bundesbank? On November 30th, 1978, the Chancellor complied with the Bundesbank's wishes by initialing the Eminger letter before he actually signed the EMS agreement. But, he told the Bundesbank Council, the Eminger letter must remain secret not to be part of the EMS agreement. The Chancellor further stated that this was allowable under the classical legal exemption clause, clausula rebus sic santubus, and for those who aren't Latin lovers, treaties may become inapplicable because of changes in circumstances. The Eminger letter was trotted out by the Bundesbank. Finally, 24 years later, on Friday, September 11th, 1992, the Bundesbank indicated on that Friday that it would not continue to support the hapless Italian lira. This forced the devaluation of the lira over the weekend and helped spark a run on the British pound on Wednesday, September 16th, Black Wednesday. That was the day both Italy and the UK were forced to leave the ERM. So when it comes to the rule of law and money, elasticity dominates. There is one big lesson from this very granular book that Dick has produced, and, and that is the lesson. Beware of national emergencies, like the so-called war on terrorism, or a recent once-in-a-lifetime financial crisis. In closing, Dick, I, I would like to uh, actually pose one granular question, if I may. <laughs> and that is, on page 58, you state that the first authorization of greenbacks occurred in February of 1862 in the amount of 150 million. And then on page 61, you state that the ongoing inflationary pressures of the government issued greenbacks resulted in the suspension of specie payments in December, on December 30th, 1861. How could this be? You state, first, the authorization of the greenbacks occurred in February of 1862, followed by the suspension of specie payments in December of 1861. By my reckoning, 1861 came before 1862, not after it. <laughs> but I might be missing something there, Dick. Maybe you can help me. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Steve. Uh, 
Our second discussion is George Selgin, uh, again, an old friend. Uh, he's been at many of the Cato Monetary Conferences over the year, years. Um, he's a professor of economics at University of Georgia. In fact, I think uh, Dick Timberlake may have helped hire him. Uh, and he's a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. He's one of the world's leading experts on the history and theory of free banking and the author of several books, including Bank Deregulation and Monetary Order, uh, another book on, quote, good money, and uh, a very important book on the theory of free banking. His articles have appeared in numerous scholarly journals, such as the Economic Journal, uh, Economic History Review, Journal of Economic Literature, and the Journal of Money, Credit, and Banking. Uh, as well as in leading newspapers like the Wall Street Journal and the Financial Times. Uh, George is also co-editor of the Economic Journal Watch. Uh, George holds a PhD in economics from New York University. And if I'm not mistaken, uh, was Larry White your advisor at NYU? And I think Larry's here today, I saw Larry. So George, uh, glad you're here. Thanks, Jim. It's a real pleasure to be here. I can actually uh, I can actually answer Steve's question, but that's only because I've read Dick's book on uh, the history of mon monetary policy in the United States, which explains the way the government borrowed from the banking system in three tranches, refused to take the uh, borrowings for the war effort except in gold, forced the suspension and the greenbacks where. Uh, uh, the planned in order to deal with the consequence of what it had done. Is that about right, Dick? That's correct. Thank you. <laughs> I've been <laughs> I've been waiting for over thirty. Talk about granular. <laughs> I've been waiting for over thirty years for Dick's book to uh, appear. Believe it or not, uh, not that I knew that he was actually planning to write it 30 years ago, but I remember one of the first conversations I had with Dick then, uh, long before I came to work at the University of Georgia, I had written a paper myself, uh, uh, a long essay about U.S. monetary history, in which I encountered for the first time the various court cases that Dick's book uh, discusses, and read the available literature dealing with those cases, almost all of it, well, all of it, written by various legal scholars. And, uh, well, it occurred to me that first, uh, it was appalling that the Supreme Court had managed to end up reading the constitutional's, Constitution's money clauses the way it did, but also that the books then available discussing these decisions, written as they were by lawyers were unsatisfactory, not only in some cases, uh, in my opinion, on their, uh, in their uh, interpretation of how the Constitution worked, but also particularly on their lack of understanding of basic monetary economics, which is necessary if you're going to know what's necessary when it comes to money. Anyway, uh, uh, we had a discussion about it way back then, I'm pretty sure Dick was wearing the same tie, by the way. Uh, and, uh, and I had no idea that the long-run outcome would be precisely the sort of book I had very much wished I could have read uh, back then. 
It's an absolutely wonderful book with a terrific story to tell. Everybody's mentioning Dick's age. I can't help noting myself that that uh, he was only about four years older when we had this conversation than I am now. Uh, and also that uh, in his book, in several places, he refers very admiringly to the work of uh, a once famous American historian, George Bancroft, who took a crack at this same topic when he was 84 and wrote a relatively small book about it. I can't help thinking that Dick said to himself, I'll show Bancroft a thing or two. Anyway, uh, it has a wonderful story to tell about uh, the series of cases in which the Supreme Court managed, by which the Supreme Court managed ultimately to reinterpret what to all of us must appear to be the perfectly plain, clear language of the Constitution's money clauses in such a way as to sanction an official currency, that is the stuff we have today, of precisely the sort that the founders, to a man, had sought to proscribe. That's the story. And it's a very fascinating story that Dick tells very well. Uh, I'm sorry, I must grab the book because I'm going to read a little bit from it. Pardon me. Uh, at times, I'm afraid, uh, you will have to face the fact that Dick's book is going to make you angry. But I must say that Dick, nevertheless, keeps commendably calm in telling it. Let me give you an example of this calm approach that he's managed somehow, because I know Dick, and uh, he does get angry too, but you wouldn't know it reading this. Consider the following passage from Justice Gray's opinion, uh, uh, in which he held greenbacks as legal tender to be constitutional. Gray wrote in his uh, majority opinion, quote, the power of impressing upon those bills or notes the quality of being a legal tender for the payment of private debts was a power universally understood to belong to sovereignty. In Europe and America, at the time of the framing and adopting of the Constitution of the United States, the governments of Europe, acting through the monarch or the legislature, according to the distribution of powers under their respective constitutions, had and have as sovereign, as sovereign a power of issuing paper money as of stamping gold. And then there's a little footnote. This is Dick's comment. Gray did not elaborate further on the, quote, respective constitutions, unquote, of European governments at the time. Think about it. Did you think about it? <laughs> it's actually pretty funny. That's the sort of thing I mean by quiet and calm. Uh, in other parts, the book is just full of nice little surprises to some of us who uh, perhaps have gleaned our monetary history by listening to the pronunciamentos of Bernanke and such. Here, for example, is something you might not know. 
concerning the common claim that it was a lack of gold that prevented us from combating the Great Depression in the 1930s, that the Fed was hindered by golden fetters, he writes, Dick writes. The irony was that the Fed Treasury gold stockpile, even with all the reserve requirements in place, hefty 40% gold reserve requirements for Federal Reserve notes, was still large enough at the trough of the Depression, mind you, to generate nearly twice as much common money, hand-to-hand -hand currency and bank reserves subject to check, as then existed. Just a little detail, you know. I think this is in passing, right? It doesn't have anything to do with the Constitution. But isn't it nice to run into interesting facts like that? Uh, finally, there are charming bits, too, like this footnote. Where is it? Page 179. Oh, uh, yes. He writes, uh, On this writer's ninth birthday in 1931, his doting grandfather pressed into his hand a $5 gold piece, a half eagle. I remember that it was larger than a nickel, but smaller than a quarter. So I saw and handled a real gold coin for about one day in my life. Of course, I could not, uh, <laughs> I could not, not prodigally spend more than a small fraction of it. And before I even did that, the half eagle was lying back in a piggy bank and then back in a real bank, and then see below. <laughs> finally, finally, I want to stress to all of you that this isn't a book that is just about money or even just about the Supreme Court's deliberations concerning money. It was through the court's reinterpretations of the monetary clauses of the Constitution that the court st stole out, ripped out the very soul of the entire document with its, it, with its structure that was supposed to provide for a, limited, a government of limited and enumerated powers. It wasn't that this was part of a broader story of a reinterpretation of the Constitution, where there were other cases that contributed as much as these and perhaps more to the eviscerating of that doctrine, that, that document. It was the constitutional clauses that ultimately were treated as or turned into loopholes, although there was nothing in them that was loose, by court decisions that have allowed them to drive through uh, that document, all of the many horses and carriages that have passed through it until modern times. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, George. You know, uh, I was speaking to Dick several years ago, and I was kind of curious, um, you know, how do you keep in such good shape mentally and physically and so forth? And he said he has three rules. Uh, First, breathe deeply. Second, keep moving. And third, get or stay skinny. So that's what I think of when I work out. So, uh, but uh, let's um, let's open it up to uh, questions. And uh, please, uh, there's a I think there's going to be a microphone coming around. You probably don't need one here. Uh, 
Raise your hand and then uh, please identify yourself and uh, keep, it, keep the questions short and you can address them to a specific person if you wish. Uh, yeah, right here down the front. Thanks. Uh, my name is Dave Doctor. I'm just hoping you could give a little legal explanation where you brought up Andrew Jackson was able to overrule the Supreme Court in his day. Uh, like, what is the sort of legislative uh, counterattack or the executive counterattack when the Supreme Court issues these rulings? Like, what what could they do to override the Supreme Court? Are you asking me? Uh, Use a mic. Oh yeah. Well, anyway, I'll get up close to it. The only way that a Supreme Court can overrule itself is by subsequent Supreme Court rulings. It's the old story of a diamond being the hardest substance in the world. The only thing that can cut it is another diamond. I use this analogy in the book because I think it's appropriate. The, uh, so, um, a, a later Supreme Court has every right under the Constitution, uh, every, chief, every justice has, uh, uh, takes the oath to support the Constitution. If he thinks that a previous court decision has been not constitutional, he has every right to say so and to uh, and to try and and turn it back the other way. This very same thing happened in 1871, when um, when the when the court under uh, when the court uh, turned <coughs> uh, reversed the first supreme first uh, legal tender decision and said the. The greenbacks were legal tender. One of the, I think it was the later, the chief justice named Strong, who had supported that idea of, of overturning the first act, uh, said magnanimously, because he was on the majority at the time, he said, well, yes, we're overturning uh, the previous court's decision, uh, but that's the nature of our uh, our existence. If uh, if this court finds that, the, or any future court finds that that the deci decision we have made is improper, uh, we'll be glad to uh, re-argue the case and perhaps come to a, a different decision. In other words, he set up the precedent for um, a judicial review by subsequent courts of some given uh, condition, some given court case. Yeah, how about in the back here? Uh, my name is Stephen Shore. I'm curious, no one mentioned the word silver, and we did have at least a quasi-bimetal standard until um, silver coins were discontinued, 90% were discontinued in 1964, and the 40%, the, the final coin in 1968, I believe. Was the story of silver simply a footnote to the story of gold, or did bimetallism in any way contribute to the end of specie of any precious metal? 
uh, I think uh, bimetallism proved to be unwieldy. Uh, I'm not so sure it was. Milton Friedman wrote a book in which he showed, called Monetary Mischief, in which he showed how uh, the, the bimetallic standard could work. Uh, it was either, uh, and, and one economist, famous economist, Marshall, what was his first name? John? John? No, no. Anyway, Marshall, the economist. Oh, the economist, Alfred. I'm sorry. Alfred Marshall. He said, it's, it's an alternative system. You're either on a gold standard, which is working, or you're on a silver standard, which is working, and the other metal is not in play. And that's the nature of a bimetallic system because the market process, um, market conditions won't stay constant on the terms that a legislature has made between the two metals. So the, the, uh, the monetary authorities, namely Congress, always had that problem to deal with. Um, it's, it's a technical problem. I, I don't want to take a lot of time with it, but um, uh, it amounted to that, that uh, uh, one metal became dominant or the other and until practical natural forces uh, restored some kind of balance to the system, but it, it didn't uh, default the system because one metal or the other uh, would provide the constraining influence that was necessary. Um, well, that's about all I can say about that. George, go ahead. You just, want to take it? Yeah, just to, just to elaborate a little bit on this, on, on what, yeah. what actually happened to silver. Uh, it, it really, the silver silver dollar as a standard dollar went out, had already gone out in the 1830s because of the silver discoveries uh, in Appalachia. So silver became, uh, I'm sorry, gold discoveries in Appalachia, which, which made <clears throat> gold relatively cheaper. And under the original bimetallic definitions of the dollar, essentially that made it profitable for people to bring gold to the mint to coin, but not silver. So after that, and even more so after the California discoveries, even though you, you both metals could be freely coined, it was only gold practically that was being so. Uh, and that remained the case when uh, the uh, suspension of metal payments ended after the Civil War, eventually in 1879. There was only gold that was being minted. But in the meantime, in 1873, quietly, Congress just took the standard silver dollar coin off the list of coins that the mint would make, uh, effectively legally uh, demonetizing silver but at the time, not thinking much of it because for so long, no one wanted any silver dollars minted anyway. In retrospect, when gold started to uh, 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 increase again in value, uh, this 
came to be referred to as the crime of 1873 because suddenly people realized that silver, which might have started being coined again, couldn't be because of the silver being taken off the list. So it's a long story of how silver went out of the picture, and, uh, but it was out for a good long time, and that's why it's sometimes convenient to speak only in terms of the gold alternative to paper because in practice, those really were the only relevant options uh, for most of U.S. history. If you happen to be suffering from insomnia, bimetallism is a great thing to read. <laughs> yeah. Any questions over on this side? I haven't... Uh... Okay, well, help. right here. Well, let's see, you ask a question already. Let's get somebody else. Kurt Schuller from the Treasury Department. Uh, my understanding from what I've, you know, what I've heard about your book, uh, which I look forward to reading, is that you end with the, the, the Great Depression and cases in that period. Um, are there some you know, <clears throat> perhaps uh, less significant cases but that you still think deserve some attention you know, uh, that have happened since then uh, that you know, stand out in your mind that is that is related to the uh, you know, related to the monetary system of the US you know, are, are there any that you would place maybe not on the same plane of importance but you know a step below uh, that have happened since the Great Depression that you want to uh, discuss here briefly couldn't understand anything since the depression any Supreme Court decisions about money since the Depression that you know about? Oh, since the Depression? Uh, yeah, since the Gold Clause State oh, case. Oh, gold. Since it's, then. It's re, it's, you're allowed to own gold now. Is that what you're driving at? No, he's asking whether there were any Supreme Court decisions that would affect the monetary system since the Great Depression. Oh. Uh, I don't think anything much after the gold cause cases. In fact, I don't think any. Uh, maybe, do you know of one? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, gold, uh, 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 in the, um, the effect of the gold uh, laws uh, the past in the late 1930s was uh, that gold was no longer uh, permitted as a, a, a money and uh, people weren't even allowed to hold gold coins that were money. They had to turn them all in to get them melted down so that gold could be uh, uh, dispensed with in the monetary system so that Congress could pass laws to uh, and make the Federal Reserve the uh, monitor and and uh, authority for uh, generating money and uh, Congress did pass the the Banking Act which was the Central Banking Act of 1935 and and with that act, gave uh, the Federal Reserve System 
unlimited control over the quantity of money. And, the, and, the, and that power has been supplemented since by some things like the Monetary Control Act of 1980, and I don't know what else, uh, and also the, the presumption of power that uh, the Fed has taken, ever, especially since uh, about 2007, but uh, the Fed had almost complete control of the monetary system before that anyway. Uh, so uh, what Bernanke and the Fed have done since, it just simply uh, uh, flashed that power, uh, uh, flaunt it, uh, and spend it on stimulus and bailouts and instead of just uh, straightforward, modest, increases in the in the economy stock of money yeah i'll put right here my name is bo bobbitt i'm from uh, black mountain north carolina the anybody that would have just any comment about the popular movement for the return to the gold standard you mean today today well, there is a there is a minor, there are a minor there is a minority of people who would return to the gold standard, and I think uh, half of them are in this room. <laughs> <laughs> there are there is a movement afoot. I think it's stronger than just the numbers. Um, uh, my colleague Larry White over there has written a, a very good article about that, about re the return. And uh, Jim Dorn has uh, uh, authored and collected uh, 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 articles for doing that, for getting in, in that direction. So um, it's not a lost cause, but one thing I think is we have to think of is that the gold standard is not only the only constraining system. Uh, there are other ways to constrain the agency that's creating money. Uh, maybe we ought to abolish it, and I think we should, but we have to write into the into being some kind of 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 uh, means for money to occur. And there are some, uh, uh, some papers that have dealt with that. I particularly liked uh, Leland Yeager's uh, work uh, with a man named Greenfield, uh, the Greenfield-Yeager system. Essentially what it would do would be to substitute a bunch of commodities for gold Gold happens to be the one best solution for a commodity money system, but uh, uh, it's possible we could work on something like the Jaeger system and come up with something more workable. The, the important thing about gold is everybody recognizes it and everyone has an intuitive understanding of how gold could be money. 
it's, uh, we don't have to have a PhD in economics to uh, sort of appreciate how gold or silver or precious metal could be money. Go ahead. Well, uh, as long as Steve Hankey is going around getting governments to, to set up hard, hard links of their even worse currencies to uh, the U.S. dollar by dollarizing or by setting up currency boards, we really owe it to the rest of the world to try to get our own currency system to be a lot better than it is. I think, though, when you come to considering that question and the constitutional matters that Dick writes about in his book, uh, one reaction of people is to say, well, we don't think the gold standard was so hot, therefore, who cares if the Supreme Court didn't honor the, the clauses of the Constitution or read so much into them? But I think that that's a complete misunderstanding because ultimately the constitutional clauses are only about what Congress can do. It can coin gold and silver. That doesn't constrain by itself the monetary system. It just constrains the kinds of money that Congress can issue. There's still plenty of scope within that constitutional framework for other innovative kinds of money. And so uh, I don't, even if, if, even if I agreed with the conventional wisdom about how the gold standard wouldn't be a standard we, we would have wanted to preserve anyway, I still wouldn't see that as an argument for not wishing that the Constitution was upheld the way it ought to have been. I don't think it is a good argument. Uh, but uh, once again, I want to stress that that uh, the possibilities, including what Dick just mentioned, for a well-operating monetary system extend far beyond the, uh, the, the things specifically allowed for by the Constitution. And the abiding by those things doesn't rule out having a far more sophisticated system than what you might have had if you stuck to the Constitution in 1790. My, our constitutional monetary system today, if it had been all, constitutional all along, would be a sophisticated system consistent with the Constitution, but having many things the founders would never have uh, pr presumably contemplated, many features. I think Steve wants to. Yeah, the, the, um, I think uh, particularly as the uh, topic has come up with the virtual currencies and bitcoins and things like that recently and and uh, there, there's so much confusion uh, uh, among the ranks particularly I think uh, many people who, who don't like central banking and have misgivings about central banking uh, that it it takes uh, it, I think one should reflect a little bit on on kind of the the broad sweep of history of currencies and if you go back let's say 3,000 years there there's always been one dominant currency and until 1971 when the gold window was closed uh, all of those were were either a commodity or uh, in, in large part uh, a currency that was convertible into a commodity. And, and each one of those dominant currencies lasted an average of about 300 years. Now the U.S. dollar coming up to today, we're, we're in kind of a new era in, in a way because it hasn't been that long since 
uh, commodities have been detached completely from, from all central bank money, and so we have fiat currencies as a result. Now, the Bitcoin comes into the picture, and, and it's kind of amusing to me because a, a lot of the silly arguments about Bitcoin, uh, they, they say, well, this is a wonderful alternative, you know, to, for fiat uh, currencies. Well, even Paul Krugman, Krugman got it right. The Bitcoin's the ultimate fiat currency. I mean, it, it, it doesn't even have the <laughs> legal tender status that uh, stamped on uh, on state money. Uh, it's just what what they say it what they say it is, <laughs> and it's not backed by anything. It's not convertible into anything except an, uh, another state money. Uh, so, with that, we're in an era of fiat monies, and, and the question is, I think, are we ever going to go back to any kind of a commodity-based money, whether it be a, a Jaeger-type system or something that's more unidirectional like gold or silver or something like that. What, what, what do you think, Dick, the prospects are realistically for exiting, exiting uh, 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 partially anyway, the, the fiat world that, that we're in because we're really in a total fiat world now? Well, I wish I had a crystal ball, but um, I don't see how we... As they used to say in the movies, I don't see how we can go on like this. <laughs> and uh, uh, it's it's a real it's a real puzzle, and uh, it's a, a time to live in to, the, to to see what's going to happen. Um, the first, I mean, given the conditions we have now with the Federal Reserve in control, we could. Uh, and I think this is the the best approach, uh, fix the conditions under which it can create money. We have to get rid of the notion that it controls interest rates and uses interest rates to control the economy. That is absolute nonsense. And, and the Fed has been able to propagandize that idea on and on and on. The Fed controls the quantity of money. And if we can limit the Fed's control over the quantity of money by some rigorous rule, doesn't matter whether it, I would suggest that the Fed be allowed to increase the monetary base 3.65% per year and 3.66% on leap years. <laughs> So it would be one one hundredth of one percent per day, by the day, every day, and and just get out of all the rest of everything it does, close up the Fed banks, and eliminate the board. But well, let the Fed banks continue as clearinghouse associations for the region in which they're located, but no more discretionary policy for the Fed. We don't care what it could do, we know it won't do it. Uh, so we have to tie its hands. That's, that's, I think, the short-term 
solution to what we're facing now? Well, uh, I think Steve wants one more yeah. word. Dick, Dick, I just had a thought uh, about the book. I, I think in winding it up, I think your book just validates what's called the schoolboy's theory of history. It's just one damn thing after another. <laughs> well, I think this is a good spot to end. Uh, I want to uh, just remind you that we're going to be having the Cato Annual Monetary Conference here at the Cato Institute on November 14th. And the topic there is, was the Fed a good idea? And Dick's, Dick's going to speak there, as well as uh, Larry and other, other people. We've also got uh, Representative Brady, who's uh, advanced this Sound Money Act. Uh, so there's some interest on the Hill in reforming the monetary regime as well. So I invite you to that conference. Uh, and I thank our, our key speaker here, Dick Timberlake. Keep up the good work. And I thank uh, George and... And Steve for commenting, and thank you all for coming. And uh, we can go next door now and enjoy a luncheon. Thank you very much.